Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, August 18th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a civil rights group says police have terrorized residents in a small Mississippi town. We talked to an attorney representing the citizens of Lexington in a federal lawsuit. Then a visit from the U.S. Secretary of HUD highlights efforts to provide affordable housing in the capital city. Plus, a conversation with Pulitzer Prize winning author Alice Walker. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The town of Lexington in Holmes County is at the center of a new federal lawsuit that says police have terrorized its residents. The civil rights organization, Julian, is seeking a temporary restraining order against Lexington's police department to demand protection for Lexington's largely black population, citing false arrests excessive force, and intimidation. The lawsuit comes after the organization obtained an audio recording in July of then-Lexington Police Chief Sam Dobbins using racial slurs and talking about how many people he's killed in the line of duty. He's since been fired. Julian founder Jill Colin Jefferson tells us how the suit came to be and what resolutions her clients are seeking. It's really a thing of the police doing whatever they want to do. They're making up laws on the spot. They're making up fines off the top of their heads. They're making up bail off the, on the spot. And when they arrest somebody, after they arrest them is when they figure out what to charge them with. It's, <laughs> it is absolute pandemonium there. And the cops are preying upon people. They are this town's gang. The interim police chief, Charles Henderson, is black, correct? Yes, he is. What is he getting out of this, in your estimation? (laughs) When you say out of this, what do you mean by this? Having that um, authorizing misconduct. Because in the lawsuit, it does say that he, too, authorizes police officers to act in ways that aren't consistent with law enforcement policy. Yes. The one one thing that we know, but we know a lot about the things that Henderson has done, but one of the things that we know is that he's actually one of the people who advised the former chief of police on what to charge people with after he falsely arrested them. So he was he was really great at figuring out that was one of the things that he was good at that kind of, you know, put him in high esteem in that police department that he could easily figure out what to charge somebody with after they were falsely arrested. Um but what Henderson gets out of this is power. This man is now over the police department. You know, he went from being an investigator, you know, and, and in that role, he was doing a lot of wrong, a lot of wrong. Like I mentioned, you know, when they busted down that woman's door, that was when he was an investigator that they did that, you know, and he was promoted to chief still. 
And so what he's getting out of this is simply power. The former police police chief, while he was fired last month, he was recorded using racial expletives. The alderman voted three to two to fire him. But he's still riding around, you said. Yes. How long has this culture been going on? So it's been happening for a while. What we what we know is that it's been intense since July 2021, which is when the former chief, the one you were just mentioning, who's still riding around, that's when he was appointed chief. And so basically the targeting everything, the... <laughs> The constitutional violations, all of that ramped up when he became chief, and they still have not stopped. Of all the research that you've done, have you been able to determine what is behind this? Is it just that this former police chief, Sam Dobbins, likes it this way, or is there something else going on? Yeah, so... What this is, is Jim Crow, still alive and well, a culture of Jim Crow in a small Mississippi town. That is that is what this is. And this town, which is predominantly black, it's 86 percent black, but controlled by white people. This is this is a town where the white power structure likes it being this way. And one of the things that this police chief, this former chief Dobbins did for them basically was quote unquote keep the black people in line. <laughs> you know, keeping them under his thumb, keeping them in control, keeping them in fear. The other thing that's happening here is that with these trumped up charges, these false arrests, all of that, which each one of the with each one of these things comes a fine. This is a really, really small town with not much industry. These fines are basically how they're funding themselves. So this town is making its revenue in large part over constitutional violations. So that's also behind it. So the town is incentivized to continue to do this because it's bringing them money. And Holmes County is the poorest county in the state. Yes. What do you want to come out of this? What are you asking for in this complaint? The first thing I, that I want, that the, because and I say I, but what this community wants, because you're representing them. A federal investigation, Kristen Clark, the DOJ, the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights, we want her to investigate this, not just this police department, not just one officer, but this entire town. The municipality of Lexington needs to be investigated by the Department of Justice. That is the first thing that we want. The second thing that we want is for these people, these these families, we want them to be okay. So we need the police to be policed. So we want the city of Lexington, and this is one thing that we ask for in the suit, we want the court to compel them to request assistance from the state. The governor of Mississippi, Tate Reeves, has at his disposal the Mississippi Highway Patrol, the Mississippi State Guard, the Mississippi National Guard, and investigators that he can deploy at will. We want him, we want them to ask him for that assistance. The other thing that we want out of this is a restraining order against the police. (laughs) It's sad that you have to put a restraining order against an entire police department. But to restrain them, 
from violating people's rights, from targeting, from harassing, from coercing, from assaulting, everything that they're doing that's wrong to stop that. So those are the things that we want. We thank you so much for your time in speaking us and giving us a uh, clear clear picture, a clearer picture of why this lawsuit has been filed and your expectations going forward. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. MPB News has reached out to the Lexington City Attorney for comment. We haven't yet received a response. Coming up, a visit from the U.S. Secretary of HUD highlights efforts to provide affordable housing in the capital city. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. When you look at your vehicle, think of MPB. Need to get rid of your ride? Donate it by calling 877-MPB-4-CAR. Need to have some work done on your truck? Listen to AutoCorrect Thursdays at 10, Saturdays at 11. An MPB license plate reminds you that MPB is with you wherever you go. Go to your county office and ask for an MPB car tag. MPB and cars, better together. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. We cannot build enough houses. We are today 1.5 million houses short of where we ought to be as a nation. So if we don't continue to start to do things like this, we're going to lose even more. That's U.S. Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Marsha Fudge. She visited Jackson yesterday identifying housing needs as the federal government is investing billions of dollars into housing projects across the nation. Habitat for Humanity Mississippi Capital Area often uses federal dollars to update private infrastructure and renovate homes, then work within the community to provide them to eligible home buyers at affordable rates. Twanza Payne purchased her first home through the project two years ago. The mother of four who helps to care for her grandson tells our Kobe Vance how becoming a homeowner has empowered her. I love it. It's great. I, I'm excited. I've been excited since I got the house, been excited before the house was even here, and it means a lot to me. How long have you been living here? We've been living here approximately almost two years. Two years. What's it been like? Oh, it's been it's a, it's a different experience from moving from one place into your own. It's a different thing when when you say stuff to people like I'm going home instead I'm just going to I'm going to Sharon House. I'm coming home. In fact, I got a home to leave a legacy for my children. I love it. What was the process like to be able to qualify? The process was pretty kind of simple. You know, once you apply, and then, you know, you, when you get approved, then the process of doing the sweat equity and things like that and putting the down payment, I don't want to say it's down payment, but putting down on it, process came and went swift and smooth. What does it mean to you to be able to live in a home that's been you know, completely rebuilt? Yes, it's different because I'm the first person that stepped foot in that, in that room. I'm the first person that took a bath in that tub. I'm the first person to take a shower in there. I'm the first person to use this sink. So it's, that's a great thing to me. I'm the first to do anything in this house. Uh, for yourself and other people in the neighborhood, what do you all see about these investments being made into North Jackson? 
I think that it's going to be great. They up, they bring it up the community, especially Broadmoor District, especially Northside, because, you know, Jackson in general, I would look as a bad place. But when they start doing things like what they're doing here with Habitat and Hood, then I think it's bringing up the community. And I also wanted to talk about your family. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourselves um, and what it's been like since y'all have been able to move into this home? Okay, so I'm Tawanza, and I'm, I would tell my age, I am 42 years old. I have four wonderful children. Marcus, which is 22, Zaria, which is 20, Kamari, who is 17, and Jermichael Sanders Jr., which is 12. Um, I'm currently engaged to Jermichael Sanders Sr., and um, we moved to this house as one big, happy, glorious family. And I think everybody so far is loving the experience of living in. Not, let me not, not mention the grandson, two-year-old Zach, who was here from day one when there was nothing here, nothing but gravel and dirt. And look at him now. He's two years old, so two years has been glorious for all of us. Has it been able to provide different opportunities than you would have had otherwise? Definitely for sure. Definitely for sure. Opportunities for him. Everybody can always say they got a stable place to lay their head. They always can be like, they, they got a, a door with a key that can come in and open. The opportunities is endless. Job opportunities, I have been on my job, and thank you, Jesus, been on my job for over five years. So I was able to pay off a whole car living here. You know, so I, I think we're doing great. She sounds so happy. Twanza Payne is a resident of Jackson. Coming up, a conversation with author Alice Walker. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. It's time for the Mississippi Book Festival on Saturday, August 20th. Visit the state capitol in Jackson from 9 to 5 p.m. and visit inside the rotunda on the first floor. The MPB Kids Club will be ready with Ed Said, PBS's Molly from Denali, plus activities and giveaways. Join Mississippi Public Broadcasting for adventure in both body and brain at the Mississippi Book Festival on Saturday, August 20th. More info at mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The Mississippi Book Festival is back in full force this year. After modifying its format for two years due to the coronavirus pandemic, the event heads back to the Capitol grounds where it began in 2015. Over 90 authors will be there, and the festival will feature panels from a wide array of literary figures. Included in that list is Pulitzer Prize winner Alice Walker. Walker, whose panel will be held virtually, has written short stories, children's books, and seven novels, most notably 1982's The Color Purple. MPB's Michael Guidry spoke with Walker about writing and the purpose of books. I love books, and of course I write books. Um, but yeah, it's, it's the kind of thing that helps to build community. Uh, and, you know, they're book lovers of all kinds of, you know, persuasions. I mean, there, you know, you can find people who like books no matter where you go. And uh, Mississippi, of course, is famous for some of its great writers. So there have always been, out of Mississippi, uh, people who love to, to write and people who love to read. Uh, but when we were there, getting them all in one room or in one building uh, was problematic because there was so much tension and, you know, discord and hatred and violence. Uh, so I can only feel joyful. As someone who reads books, likes books, writes books, in, in the context of this book festival where we, we celebrate 
fiction, nonfiction, poetry, every form of writing. What is it about books that you like, whether it's reading them, drawing them? What purpose do they serve? You said it's a, they're, they're, they're a part of community. What do oh, books provide us? Books are transformative. Uh, without books, without reading about other people, other places, other events, um, other transformations, uh, many of us would not be able to uh, navigate the world, you know, the, the places that we have to go to and to be on this planet. It's partly because we can read about places before we go there that we have a deeper understanding once we are there of where we are. You know, it's like you read Faulkner still, I think, to understand at a deeper level uh, about Mississippi. And <clears throat> and that is one of the values of writing. It's magical. You, you can literally bring people from one century or one era to another, you know, and by reading, because your imagination instantly connects. And so you, you bring that up, and I'd like to point to your, your Pulitzer Prize winning uh, work of uh, A Color Purple, which does just that. It brings people to a different time and place. Uh, and and race is a, is a very strong concept in that writing and some of your other writing. I bring that up because I'd like to know, you know, how you feel, your perspective. We are currently kind of seeing uh, efforts to restrict access to, to certain books, um, especially for adolescents. And when you look at those lists, books that 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 capture the black experience or uh, other marginal experiences in the United States are the ones that are being targeted. What is your response when you see now uh, the color purple and some of your writing might not be, you know, on a lot of these lists, but works like them are works that really put the black experience front and center. How do you respond to to seeing that happen at this point in time? It's very discouraging uh, to think that people would literally make themselves more ignorant. It's shocking, because that's what they're doing. They're making themselves and their children more ignorant in a world where we need all the intelligence, all the you know information, all of the awareness that we can muster, because we're going down the hill uh, in terms of the planet. Uh, so, you know, it's the same small-mindedness, narrow-mindedness, and, 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 you know, fear. You know, people are afraid. Or they, they figure, you know, they have gotten where they've gotten, and, you know, nothing should ever make them think twice about how they got there. Um, but actually, their children, if they are at all intelligent, uh, will want to know more about what happened, actually, you know, not just what their parents are trying to make them believe. Um, and I, I can see that that's, you know, we're, if you look at the planet, you know, where it is, not just in terms of climate change, uh, but in terms of all the constant, constant wars, uh, which contribute more than anything else to climate change, you can see that we don't have a lot of time to try to learn how to live together. You know, I think people who ban books, really do want people to live in little corners and little pockets where they feel safe. And I understand that, but nowhere is safe. Nowhere. There's nowhere on this planet now it's... that is safe. So you, you really, <clears throat> I think, uh, harm your children and harm people 
uh, when you limit the amount of information that they can gather by whatever means. They don't need it all. Was was part of telling that story in 1982, um, was part of your objective, part of your purpose was to was to enlighten was to share oh it was it was not even that it was it was more like a something it was a debt i owed to my grandparents right uh and i paid it uh because they had you know taken me in when i was little and and i was wounded and they had shown me so much love and i wanted to understand these people i wanted to understand how they got to be who they were. But yeah, that's what that was about. It was about paying a debt and being, you know, grateful and respectful to these two old people uh, who loved me. I see. It's been 40 years since you published A Color Purple, and it's 40 years of lived experience for you. Would anything be different if you were to try to write that book again today? Oh, I wouldn't need to. I, I wouldn't need to. It's not. I mean, I went on to write how many more? Five or six novels after right. that. Right. Yes, ma'am. And so I, I don't, you know, no, I, I'm somewhere else entirely, in a way. I mean, that's what happens, you know, when you're when you're creating things, you have a period of deep immersion into whatever it is you are feeling, you know, and what you want to accomplish. And you do a lot of praying, you know, you do a lot of walking, you do a lot of just, you know, looking at the moon. Uh, and hoping that you can, you know, help you can deliver, you know. And, and it's not even like you're trying to deliver to, in a way, living people anyhow. I mean, so the, the banning part is sort of funny. But you're trying to deliver to the people that you are honoring. You know, I, I'd like to mention to people that when I wrote the last page of The Color Purple, I just, I went to my knees and I just wept because I felt like, you know, I've done everything I could to, to, to bring it to the right place. You know, and the right place would be where they were honored, they were seen, and they were appreciated, and they were loved, and they were, and they were not, you know, they were not perfect. Hmm. And so, you know, if they, you know, if my grandfather was, you know, a terrible person as a young man, uh, that had to be clear. And, and what was beautiful was that he didn't stay that way. And that's how it is with us. You know, we don't have to stay mean and, you know, vicious and, you know, drunkards and, you know, crazy people. I mean, we, we evolve. I mean, that's just part of what we can do as humans. Well, thank you. And I'd like to close by kind of bringing it full circle. Um, this is the Mississippi Book Festival that you're participating in this weekend. Uh, it's uh, it's a celebration of 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 books and writings, a lot of focus on Mississippi writers or writers who have connections to Mississippi. And Mississippi, because of, you know, other things outside of literature, has been, has had a spotlight put on it um, recently. And uh, sometimes the narrative is, is, well, that's Mississippi. And I'd like to leave with your thoughts on that. Um, as someone who has lived here and now has lived away, currently in California. Um, mm -hmm. That's Mississippi. What does that mean to you? Um, well, it, you know, it, it could mean a, a few things. Uh, I think that when I was there, 
that's Mississippi meant that I was in alignment with some of the most courageous people I've ever met anywhere uh, and the ones with the most soul and heart uh, and the ones that I wanted to be standing with. And so um, I think that Mississippi, when I say that's Mississippi, it could it could cover a lot of scenarios, and that would be one of them where people stand together and they face what it is that is harming them. And they say to themselves and to each other and to the opposition, we will not accept, you know, being torn apart, being abused, um, and being treated as if we are not who we know we are, which is, you know, full-fledged human beings, you know, children of this universe. So my sense of what Mississippi offers its people uh, is that, you know, so I feel I feel very optimistic about Mississippi and its people. Well, Miss Alice Walker, thank you for your time. Uh, we look forward to the book festival and your conversation uh, with KZ Lehman. Um, thank you again so much. You're welcome. Thank you. The Mississippi Book Festival is this Saturday and runs from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.